listening to Pop Health Week on Healthcare Now Radio. I'm Greg Masters, Managing Director of Health Innovation Media, the publisher of ACLWatch.com, and your Pop Health Week co-host with my partner, co-founder, Fred Goldstein, President of Accountable Health, LLC, a Jacksonville, Florida-based consulting firm. Our guest today is the visionary Clay Johnston, MD, PhD. Since March 2014, Dr. Clay Johnston has served as the inaugural dean of the Dell Medical School and as vice president for medical affairs at the University of Texas at Austin. Johnston's vision is to create a new model for academic medicine that accelerates innovation to improve health and reduce inefficiencies in health care. In 2016, Johnston was named Austinite of the Year by the Greater Austin Chamber of Commerce for his leadership in transforming health and health care in Austin. Previously, Johnston was Associate Vice Chancellor for Research at the University of California, San Francisco. He also directed the Clinical and Translational Science Institute and founded the UCSF Center for Healthcare Value to engage faculty and trainees in improving the quality of care while also lowering costs. So Fred, over to you. Let's get to know Dr. Clay Johnston and what he's up to at the Dell Medical School. Thank you so much, Greg. And Clay, welcome to Pop Health Week. Thank you. It's really a pleasure to have you on. Perhaps you could give our audience a little sense of Dell Medical School and where you're at with it now. I understand this is going to be the first year you have a class graduating. Yeah, that's right. So we're, yeah, we're a brand new school. We, uh, you know, we now have our fourth class just arrived and Austin didn't have a medical school before. UT Austin did not have a medical school. So largest city without one, one of the few tier one research universities in the U.S. that didn't have one and huge opportunity, you know, to to think differently. And so that's really what we're about. So we're looking at, well, what's wrong with our health system? And then how do we uh, create a better future where innovations are really designed to improve outcomes for patients and reduce waste? And we bring to bear our modern tools for doing that and age-old tools like, uh, you know, uh, research methods applied to rapid cycle innovation. So that that's the kind of work we're doing. The curriculum kind of matches up with that uh, bigger goal. Yeah, and speaking of curriculum, you had the opportunity to sort of create a program from scratch. It's I, I look through some, it's very innovative. Can you talk about some of the differences of how the Dell Medical School program approaches medical education for the undergraduate level versus the typical medical school we see today? Yeah, sure. So we, we're really focused on, on training leaders. So you know, looking at the health system today, uh, physicians have become the victims of the health system as opposed to really you know, leading the changes that we all see are necessary within it. So how do we identify and then train the people who can, can focus not just on the patient in front of them, but on, on the systems of care, on the activities that happen outside of the clinic in produce a better health system. For uh, leadership qualities, we interview differently. We look for creativity as well as um, devalue things like grades and board scores. I mean, you got to have decent board scores and grades to to get all the content, but uh, you, that doesn't shouldn't be the primary factor. It doesn't predict having a greater impact on the world in any way. In, and then we um, our curriculum is structured differently to give us more time to focus on on these other concepts. So we actually take what is, you know, traditionally two years of basic science and we squeeze that down to 12 months. Other schools are starting to do the same thing or have been 
few have gotten down to 12 months. I think we may, I don't know if we're the only one, but anyway, not many. And then they go into the clinic immediately after that. And then they have this additional third year. It's our innovation and leadership block. And that they focus on, you know, again, the leadership skills, uh, communications, health systems, value-based healthcare, human-centered design. They work on projects that have the potential to improve health. And also, we, we really think that problems in the healthcare system are so difficult that we need to approach it from different perspectives of bringing in other disciplines and not just the traditional interprofessional health disciplines, but also business, fine arts, public health, all of those. So many of our, our students also get a second degree during that extra year with the MBA and now our new Masters of Healthcare Transformation being the, the most popular and MPH being next most popular. So again, designed you know, a lot of focus on the sort of systems issues, uh, community health prevention as well, uh, change management. And then that really fills what we are, make available by cutting the amount of time focused on, you know, the old rote memorization and those things that uh, we all suffered through when we went to med school. Can you talk a little bit about your earlier career, how you got there and how that influenced the way you thought about this new medical school starting up? Sure. Yeah. I'm a neurologist, stroke neurologist, and I, I began with primary focus on, on clinical care. Got frustrated that a lot of the things that we did, we didn't really know whether they were right or not. So then got more and more into research and then um, got a degree in epidemiology and then basically came to the realization that the research system, it was, it was too slow and awkward. It, we, weren't, we weren't really taking advantage of the opportunities to learn. And so I, I got more into research administration, try to fix the research system. And I became associate vice chancellor for research at University of California, San Francisco, and ran their clinical and translational science award, the, you know, the big NIH institutes, and came to the realization that actually it wasn't about dysfunction in research. It was actually about dysfunction in care, that we, the, the care itself was basically difficult to change, that even research findings that were compelling were slow to be disseminated in care, and that the opportunities to move care forward were being ignored. And also the research agenda really wasn't disciplined around the things that would likely make the greatest difference to health people. And so then I started a new institute at UCSF called the uh, Center for Healthcare Value and you know, got launched some projects there that were great but then came to the realization that it's heavy lifting in an institution that, that, that knows how to do everything right already, or at least believes it does. And, you know, UCSF is a, a fabulous organization, but it does, it's a gigantic organization. It does things a certain way it, it likes to. And so then when this became available, it, you know, the question was, could we, in starting from scratch, really engineer things, optimally take advantage of of what can happen in academic medicine and to stay better aligned with society's interests. And so that was really the promise that, uh, that brought me out here and, and what we've been working on ever since. So you made this comment, you know, something that makes the greatest difference in the health of people, and you talk about the care system, et cetera. So from what I've seen, does that mean you're sort of focused broader? You're looking at it broader. I noticed the third-year students are out in the community and doing projects and things like that. Is that part of that? It is part of that. So, you know, if you almost overquoted given the quality of the data, but most of health happens outside of clinics and hospitals, whether that's 80% or 90% or whatever, no one really knows, but it is most. And yet 
our system really isn't about that. It's about, you know, patching people up once they're sick and can't, can't take it anymore. <laughs> and, and so rather than spending all those dollars downstream and all our attention on uh, waiting for people's conditions to deteriorate, can we upstream things? Can we start to keep people healthy? No one wants healthcare, actually. They want to avoid healthcare. So how do we acknowledge that? And the, the difficulty there, of course, is not in what people want, although you know people don't necessarily value prevention the way they should, but it's also that the business models for supporting that are more difficult. So you know, thinking through how to move the business in that direction has been a critical part of the work that we're doing, too. And you talked, you mentioned it's all those dollars downstream, which are sort of the end result of not focusing on these social determinants issues, et cetera. But that's sort of the meat and potatoes of a medical school, isn't it? With those high risk, high cost patients coming in with major, major clinical issues. And you discussed this in your article in, in JAMA. How do you think about reconciling that from a medical school perspective and, and the points you made in your article? That is the way academic medicine has evolved. It's, you know, tertiary quaternary care for communities does often disproportionately contribute to care for the underserved and then obviously a place for research and a place for training the next generation. But this on the care side tends to be, you know, hyper-specialized and, and that's been encouraged because there's more money there. You know, primary care is harder to make money and uh, in, in tertiary care, it's, it's more attractive from a business perspective. The, but the other reason it kind of fits with academia is you, you know, you have the, the, the doctors that teach the doctors, you know, that you have uh, the experts that can focus on the, the rarer things. And so you can aggregate those things. Uh, putting that in a place that's focused on innovation does make sense. But that would just suggest that, you know, only innovation is possible in, in tertiary care. And that's clearly wrong. I mean, I think if academic medicine, you know, if we're concentrating innovations in academia, which, you know, that's the reason we put so much research there as well, which is one form of, of innovation and an important one, then that innovation ought to cover the whole range of issues that are, that are important in that domain. And so I think this focus on the dollar has taken our eyes away from the importance of innovating in these other areas, whether it's in primary care or even before primary care. Now, the before primary care has been even harder because we've left that for public health, but then public health has been perpetually underfunded and ignored and not considered an appropriate topic for, for us practitioners, whereas that's a place where we can, we can gain tremendous value, and other countries have shown us that. And so having leadership coming from those who really care about health to say, you know, we need to take responsibility for health, which means including intervening at the population health level, allows us to, you know, to have a greater impact on our communities in terms of, of producing the best outcomes possible. So at the same time in this viewpoint, academic medical centers too large for their own health, you also made the comment that Academic medical centers must reduce their reliance on fee-for-service medicine, the associated pressures to retain market share, raise prices, and increase consumption of health care. Instead, they should leverage their expert leaders to develop and coordinate new models of care, focusing on solutions that enhance value. Is that going 
away from healthcare into other services, or as you mentioned, is it focusing on primary care? Do you have some examples where that could occur, or you're it, seeing it happen with academic medical centers? Sure. Yeah. I mean, actually, it can it can occur across the board, and that's really the intent here. It can occur in tertiary care as well. There are opportunities for us. I mean, really obvious opportunities for us to make improvements across the board. So, you know, I think. For us specifically, we are uh, we are focused on all aspects. So I, I mean, I'll give you and, and there are examples. There are many other institutions that are are doing work in the space. It's not just us, but it's just you know, obviously easier for me to talk about our own work. You know, one is in subspecialty care. So you know, joint pain is a major expenditure. It's increased dramatically. There's a there's a lot of waste in that system. A lot of joints get replaced. And the patient outcomes are not necessarily great. I mean, there there's some fabulous places, but you know, we're 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 not measuring outcomes as well as we should. We're not looking at at cost like we need to. So that was an area that we redesigned early on. Did it from scratch, looking at team-based care, including some technologies, patient-reported outcomes, constantly improving that care over time. And that was a place where we could show early on that yes, we could dramatically improve outcomes, we could improve the experience, and we could reduce cost. In this instance, I'm, I'm not talking about just joint replacement surgery. I'm talking about joint pain, so upstream from the decision to do the surgery. So that's an example of, you know, kind of tertiary care thing that just can be rebuilt in a way that just makes more sense. Now, our system does not maximize fee-for-service revenue. In fact, kind of the opposite. We do a bunch of things that are not reimbursed in fee-for-service. So that's a risk for us. Lots of other places aren't going to do that. But, you know, we're doing that first because it's the right thing to do. And then, obviously, the risk that we're taking is that the payment models haven't caught up to what it is we're doing. On the other end of the spectrum, or I'll say in the middle, maybe, primary care just makes sense, right? If you're taking to an insurance dollar and then you're managing that insurance dollar, you're going to have the greatest impact by managing at the primary care level. And it doesn't mean the gatekeeper kind of approaches that we're taken early on, uh, you know, uh, back in the HMO uh, hysteria days, but it means in carefully managing and considering your patients and meeting their needs and hopefully avoiding more expensive downstream costs. So I think the places, a lot of places have ACOs, they're starting to do this work. Sometimes the ACO isn't large enough, and so they haven't converted the way they think about care, but it's a, it's a space that we're working in and and we're growing in and, and, and trying to figure out how to navigate. But then the new new area, it really is this upstream area. How do you take a fixed population and work outside of clinics and hospital and make them healthier um, and keep them healthier? And there, you know, the sustainability issues are the problem. Who's going to pay? Why are they going to pay? And so, yeah, we're, we're working in that space as well, trying to figure out you – know, it's easy – well, I shouldn't say easy, but we have been very successful in getting grants to test various things in that area. But there have been plenty of tests in that area. The key is who pays for them when the grant is done. And so, you know, our emphasis has been on bringing payers to the table and saying, well, what evidence do you need in order for you to commit to pay for this going forward should it be successful, whether it's a program to control hypertension or to convert pre-diabetics to non-pre-diabetics or to use food, to uh, programs to um, improve diabetes control in patients and reduce insulin use. You know, those are the kinds of things that we're, that we're mm-hmm. looking at in that space. And, uh, cancer screening is another one that, that fits in that uh, category as well. You mentioned payment models not, not 
coming in as quickly as you're transitioning your care delivery system. And you then discussed just Reese just now, you talked about talking to the health plans about, hey, what sort of data do you need to justify paying for this service? Are you still thinking of structuring those additional services as a fee-for-service payment where the health plan is going to see the offset in their risk? Or are you looking to try to structure contracts where you take the risk and then you're, you're in essence, earning the savings off of the fact that you did something not typically done in a care system at reducing care needs? Yeah, so I would say all of the above. I mean, the other way is we're trying to basically create products that fit under an insurance, under an ACO or other insurance product. So all of those are, are being tested and we're seeing what what works in in the market. We're a young organization as I as I mentioned early on and so we we don't have full coverage. We can't be, you know, all things. We we can't meet all requirements in ACO and actually we don't we think that the the important function of redesigning intensely that if we were just say, okay, we're doing everything now, we've got it all figured out, that would be a lie, you know. Yes, we could do it, but we wouldn't have redesigned everything. So we're, we're kind of bucketing mm-hmm. out the things condition by condition to look at each one. And that's the way we're thinking of the economics and thinking of the way that we are marketing what it is we're doing. Now we get to a and certain point st- where it's easier not to have so- all those sales discussions. And so we're kind of working on that now. Are the students also involved in some of that thinking? And as you work through some of those programmatic, et cetera? Yeah, so definitely the students are, you know, when they're getting their exposure to the the clinics, they're seeing what an integrated practice unit really looks like. So they're definitely a part of that. And then the students are all working on some project that has the opportunity to improve health. And so that could be, you know, and they're, they're not, you know, standing up integrated practice units. They don't have the expertise to do that, but they could be involved in it or they could be doing the, you know, the, uh, the focus group work that goes into planning. Or, you know, an example is the, the students in their PEDS rotation set up a whole new system for, for parent education around medication use that was sort of their idea, and they launched it and tested it, and now it's standard in the hospital. So sometimes it's just a component of what it is we're doing. That's fascinating. It's great to see them getting involved like that. As you look at the medical school over the, the next couple of years, are you structured in the typical way a medical school is, departments and department chairs and things like that, or are there some differences that you've put in place given how you're looking at the healthcare system? Yeah, so it, it's where it's kind of a hybrid. Um, the strong department structures that exist at most medical schools, we, we think are getting in the way for doing the right thing for patients because the reality is that in these integrated practice units, you have experts from a variety of different domains and you want them all working together and not worried about, you know, the finances and how dollars flow. You want them to be coordinated and making the overall right decisions for patients. So we do have departments because it's easier to recruit chairs than it is to recruit vague titles of leadership. Everybody knows what a chair is and they're, you know, comfortable with um, applying for those jobs. And also it fits with our training model, although we're, you know, looking, thinking about different training models for residencies, for example, and clerkships. But then 
the funds flow is different in that basically the departments are the home for faculty, their academic home, but then they're loaned out into integrated practice units. And so those could include people from multiple different departments. And then the finances of an integrated practice unit are looked at distinctly. And there's a leader of the integrated practice unit. So joint pain, integrated practice unit, it includes an, you know, an orthopedic surgeon, it includes a, a psychiatrist, it includes a social worker, a trainer, a physical therapist, dietitian, others. And that team works together and the finances of that group are understood within that unit, leasing time from departments. Does that make sense? It's kind of a weird hybrid system, but mm-hmm. it, it seems to be working. Yeah, it's definitely a little different from the, the standard one. But obviously, as you create these cross-functional teams or add individuals to teams, you need to look at things a, a little bit differently. And what's your impression? Obviously, I've seen some literature and on your website talk some about population health and managing these populations. You know, there's sort of still this ongoing battle. Is population health the right approach? What about precision medicine, et cetera? Where do you think that falls? Yeah, so I think... I think population health is where we need to go. You know, in, in terms of what those interventions look like, we have to be able to justify that the intervention made a difference. I think that's where we've uh, stumbled before. Made a difference in a to a to someone who's feeling the financial pain and and or benefits of you intervening. And so that's that's really where we're focused. So pre- precision medicine, I think, is a wonderful idea. Obviously, medicine has become more and more precise all the time. I mean, we we didn't even diagnose Alzheimer's disease not that long ago, and you know, I mean, we we've become we will continue to become progressively more precise. And I think precision medicine certainly has demonstrated great utility and in the cancer space. You know, identifying uh, specific subsets of, of cancer that will respond to therapies. But I think when you have a you know, a population where you have a third of patients with hypertension adequately treated, then I think you are to focus on, well, what genes are causing, you know, some rare disease seems misplaced. It seems like mm-hmm. we know hypertension has a huge impact on health. We have tens of drugs, maybe over a hundred drugs that work for hypertension, many of them very well tolerated, all and many of them very cheap. We know how to diagnose it, and yet we leave it untreated. So it seems to me that until we get until we get our act together, until we recognize what it is we're here to do, which is improve outcomes for patients, that we, we don't have any business looking at details because they're shiny new bottles as opposed to things that, you know, we ought to have done decades ago. You've obviously very successfully started up this medical school. You're now into the fourth year. You're going to have your first graduating class. Looking down the road five years, Dell Medical School's an overwhelmingly great success. What does it look like and what has it accomplished? Yeah, from from my perspective, we really have to change the financial model. And I don't mean just in for academic medicine. I, I don't just mean for the the money that we get from providing care to patients locally. I mean that we have to figure out how, you know, the way we scale innovations related to new drugs, new devices, that those kinds of innovations happen in the systems of care. And whether those are prevention-oriented, population health-oriented, primary care-oriented, or tertiary care-oriented, that there's an opportunity for those to scale, not through publication, which has failed us, but through other means that are more, that are, that are more effective. And 
I, I think that's going to be business models. doesn't have to be for-profit business models, but business models. I think that those ought to come from academic medicine. And if we can figure out how academic medicine can actually reap financial benefits from its innovations, as opposed to from providing more and more care, whether or not it it's the right thing or not from a community perspective, but really focus on innovations, then I think we've really aligned what academic medicine is best suited to do and society's interests. And those innovations in the systems of care, those are really the things that are missing, you know, internationally in the health systems. We create the systems of care that are just extremely slow in, in changing and ignoring some of the low-hanging fruit. If you had one message for, obviously, other academic medical centers may have different things going on with them. What would you tell them to focus on now? Yeah, well, so that one, I I don't propose to tell <laughs> other <laughs> right. academic medicines what to do. Because, I mean, frankly, I think that the country, uh, the world, benefits from our various uh, foci. I mean, I think the it is fabulous that we have some institutions that – that are just powerhouses in basic science. We absolutely need discovery in basic science. It's great that others really understand how to do uh, clinical research extremely well and uh, you know study uh, new drugs, devices, diagnostics, all that. It's great that others are really focused on providing you know more docs for the community and for rural areas. So I you know I think there's a whole range of wonderful things that that academic medical centers are doing. I do think. You know, you know, I'm a little hard on scale. I'm not saying scale's a bad thing in that opinion piece. I'm, what I'm really saying is we just ought to examine what scale's doing to us and how it's dictating the decisions that we're making. And I think the, the places that have scale, and there are a number of them, the one thing I would ask them is if they're using their scale to get more bargaining power in order to, to be reimbursed at higher rates, I understand why, because, you know, they have all kinds of other costs associated with their mission, but that in itself is not necessarily optimally aligning them <laughs> with, the, with, the, what, uh, with their community's needs. And so right. that temptation for growth, you know, instead it should be what folks say it is, which is, you know, aggregating gives us an opportunity to create coordinated care and offer more services in a high-level services in a distributed fashion. That's what they all say. So then I would just say, then prove it and actually focus on that and show that your outcomes are better and show that you actually right. care about costs and that you're driving down costs in the, in the system that you're providing. I think that's what the large ones need to work on. Thank you so much, Clay. That's going to have to be it for today's show. I really appreciate you coming on. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. And back to you, Greg. And thank you, Fred. That will be the last word on today's informative broadcast. I want to thank Dr. Clay Johnston, the inaugural dean of Dell Medical School and vice president for medical affairs at the University of Texas at Austin for sharing his vision for academic medicine and the pioneering work at the Dell Medical School. For more information on Dell Medical School or to follow their work, go to www.delmed.utexas.edu and follow both Dr. Johnston and the school on Twitter via at Clay Delmed and at Delmed School, respectively. For Pop Health Week, my colleague Fred Goldstein, Dr. Clay Johnston, and 
Healthcare Now Radio. This is Greg Masters saying bye now. Bye now.